to Barnkey's Preachers Podcast. I am Pastor Victoria Larson. And I'm Pastor Emily Truby Weller. And we are at the last Sunday of the Lenten season, Em. We made it through. That's right. We have arrived. (laughs) It's the start of Holy Week. Oh my gosh. The big show. The big one. (laughs) The big one. Oh, and today, today is Palm Slash Passion Sunday because one would be too little and both is always too much. <laughs> that is a great tagline for, uh, for Palm Slash Passion Sunday. <laughs> we take a second to just talk about why there's a slash in the middle of this particular Sunday. <laughs> yeah, I think it's something that's become very normal in a lot of mainline Protestant traditions, but it's, it's a little insane when you stop to examine it. It definitely is. It's a lot to try to do in one day. <laughs> so much so yeah so it's palm sunday that's the original origin story of this sunday it's the sunday of we we are grounded in the text the story of jesus triumphal entry into jerusalem the week before the week of his death he's going to die on friday good friday and then on sunday he'll rise again wait he's going to die on friday oh shit spoilers em (laughs) i forgot to tell you (laughs) Pastor jokes. Right, we're all we're here. We're here for it. Oh my! Well, in any case, there is a problem with our like increasingly secular age of having Palm Sunday immediately followed by Easter Sunday. And and M, what is that problem? Would you say in your experience as a pastor? Yeah, it's increasingly difficult. I think to get folks to come out to those Holy Week services. Preach um, it. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In my tradition, you know, I'm accustomed to a Monday, Thursday service, a good Friday service, and often an Easter vigil that all lead up to Easter Sunday. And so if you, if you don't attend those, those worship services and you're there just for Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, it's kind of like two hooray Sundays in a <laughs> row. Yeah. Um, you missed the whole death of Jesus. On the, you missed I the totally whole cut you of off, but I was so like, how no. could it be? And the resurrection is considerably less impressive if you have not read about the death. (laughs) That's it. That's it. I had a flashback just then to to a Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens where he's like, Marley is dead to begin with. You have to know that or nothing else that happens will seem remarkable. And it's the same for Jesus. Oh, that's lovely. You have to know that Jesus is dead. He's dead to begin with. (laughs) Or nothing else that follows will seem remarkable. (sighs) How could you use those words liturgically on first thing on Easter Sunday? That would be something. Great. (laughs) I wonder how many people would catch it. I I am a Christmas Carol dork, so I know parts of it word for word. That's my problem is I just always hear that in the voice of Gonzo because the Muppet Christmas Carol is the version with which I. It is the definitive adaptation. I think so. (laughs) Oh gosh, it's so good. All right. Christmas and Easter. They're really just bookends of the liturgical year. So very apropos to just take one, put it right into the other. Connect them. (laughs) That is why we put Palm and Passion Sunday together is so that people who come on Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, get the whole story of what's going to happen during the week in the probable event that they don't come to the other services that your church may offer or may not offer. Not every church does. Absolutely. And I, you know, I've 
heard and also been that pastor that laments that people don't come out to Holy Week services. Um, a lot of us put our hearts and souls into preparing for this. And then when you get eight people in the pews, uh, it can be pretty disheartening sometimes. <laughs> However, I think it might also be a pastoral care sort of thing to present at least parts of the passion story on that Sunday before. Okay. Uh, maybe it's less of an acquiescence to secular culture and more meeting our people where they are. Yeah. I think maybe on my best day, I can entertain that. And on <laughs> my worst day, I'm like, come on, people, just show up to the vigil. You know, so it's, it's both things. It's, it's a I'm both sure. end. It's a both end. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, it's so true. Yeah, no, I, I do think, I mean, people have lives and going to church four consecutive days is not everyone's idea of a good time. And I get that and life happens and it's just not always possible for people to engage in the ritual rhythm of Holy Week in the way that we could desire for them. Um, Work, life, um, childcare, there's all sorts of very real things very real. That, are not, that are not made up excuses that might Absolutely. prevent willing hearts from being there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. So for that, we make provision by cramming everything into one service. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> um, we're going to take a little bit of a different direction in this podcast, because usually um, we talk about preaching texts and homiletic directions. Yes. Uh, but I don't know about you. One of the things I do to accommodate two Sunday, well, it's really, what are we doing? Four days worth of liturgical celebration <laughs> yes. in one day. Uh, what we do to accommodate that is we often cut Back, way back on the homiletical action and let yes. the story speak for itself because this story preaches and you might as well make room for it to do that. Um, the invitation from the lectionary, if you're going to be reading all of these texts, is to do Mark 11, 1 to 11. You can also switch that out with John's account of the triumphal entry, but we like the gospel of Mark in year B, so I'm going to pretend that that's not true. Um, and then to read Mark 14 and 15. Um, you can, the prescription from the revised common lectionary is to start at 14.1 and then keep going. And you can end at the centurion's declaration by the cross, or you can keep going through the burial of Jesus and to conclude at the end of chapter 15. But that's a big honk and chunk of reading right there. It sure is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about how I, I've done this in the, I, I have tweaked this service to make it work in the past liturgically. Is that a good place to start? Do you think? Yeah, I, let's hear okay. it. Okay. So I feel like I got this idea from our preaching camp meetings, but what I did basically was I took the story of Holy Week as we get it through the texts that the revised common lectionary presents us with. And, um, I, I kind of smushed it into the liturgical action. Smushed. Uh-huh. Um, so the liturgy follows a fourfold ordo, right? There's gathering, word, meal, and sending. And conveniently, the actions of the Holy Week stories do the same thing. <laughs> you, totally. Yeah, you start out with a gathering in the triumphal entry. Um, there's a word that's shared at the Last Supper. And then... Um, there's a sort of sending out in the direction of the cross that happens by the end of the scripture. So um, one of the things that I've done is I have gone through and I've abridged the gospel because you just, I I have to, but basically what I do is I create a gathering, right? That's based around the liturgy of the palms. 
and is focused around mm. the story of the triumphal entry. And then there's a pivot point that you start out gathering in triumph, you wave the palm branches, however you're gonna do that during a pandemic time this year, it, you get that triumphal mood going. And then you need a pivot point where you shift yes. the mood into more somber reflection. And I've always used music in the past. I, I think that pivot point is essential too, if you're gonna do both the palm and passion. So um, I've played with this similarly in, in a previous context and seen it done. But um, we would have a moment, not with music, but where everyone held their palms up and then in silence simultaneously dropped them. <gasps> and you would oh, have that kind drama. of like auditory note of all the palms kind of shushing to the floor. Um, mm. And then that would kind of be the pivot point into the passion part. Um, my alma mater, Valparaiso University, has people, I don't know if they still do it, but they used to have people process in with helium-filled red balloons, um, and then they would all release the balloons, which would go up to the very high ceiling of the oh. sanctuary there at the same moment. So uh, something about that collective action of everyone doing something very small and simple at the same time uh, really has provided a pivot point. That's amazing. I love that. Oh, I'm, I'm adding it to my non-pandemic wish list <laughs> slash putting a pin in it so I can figure out how to adapt some collective action like that for a digital context. Because gosh, that's so good, Em. That's so good. <laughs> oh. All right. So we get to the pivot. And here's where you kind of have to do a little bit of a liturgical shuffle because the next thing that happens in the narrative is the Last Supper. Correct. So what I usually do is I put communion way earlier in the service than people are used to having it. But I make the reading of the account of the Last Supper, the words of institution and the liturgical action. So you are both reading the story and in a way you are rem remembering it with the members of your congregation uh, through the liturgical action of communion. So that's how you do the Last Supper piece. Uh, and then you're on to the Garden of Gethsemane. And that leads you from communion into this really beautiful mood of reflection and prayer as a yes. congregation. It's really liturgically effective. It's one of my favorite pieces of the service. Um, and then that sets people up for the whole like <laughs> crucifixion judgment narration that follows. And that's and the note that you end on. Yeah. And when... Um... When I followed a similar format, we've kind of put something akin to the prayers of the people in that Gethsemane spot. Um, yes. Something maybe a little more reflective or different or tailored to the day, but that's where a, a chunk of prayer time goes is kind of yes. in that Gethsemane portion. Yeah, it's surprising, I think, how well the story itself lends itself to the different liturgical elements that you know you're going to have to plug in because your community, like, that is church for you. If, you, if yeah. you're not doing the prayers of the people, then what have you gathered on Sunday for? Oh, um, yes. There's someone who will, their heart will just be torn up. If right, they, if, which, yeah. you know, with reason. So, but yes. there are ways to get those, like, cornerstone pieces of the service right where you need them to be. And the story itself points you to where those places might occur. It's definitely an option to consider. It still makes for a longer than average service, but it's a it shorter than average Palm Flash Passion Sunday service. And I believe our, our colleague Justin Kosick is the one who came up with this idea of fitting the liturgy. Not, I would be zero percent surprised if that were true. Yeah, 
<laughs> I think I think Justin piloted this idea, and then a few of us took it up, took off with it, and made it our own. So let's credit Justin um, for that. that let's feels credit right. Justin, and now yeah. you can take off with it and make it your own too. Mm, I love it. <laughs> So that is one direction to go. Um, there, when, I, when I've included a homiletical moment in that structure, I've usually put it right before the pivot from palm into passion. Um, because I really feel like once you get into the passion narrative, it just really takes it. It carries yes. itself. Um, I'll also say that in both in my, I, I've served in two congregations now and in both for at least one of the years we've done this, it's also been our steward, Lent was our stewardship season and mm. the Palm Sunday was our pledge Sunday, which works really well. Like people lay down the palm branches in front of Jesus as an offering. And then you're like, and now please bring forward your pledges as an offering to Jesus. And it just oh. works. It's one yeah. more big element to add into the service, but it, it the, <laughs> the point is that it requires a particular homiletical slant. So that kind of dictated my homiletical approach for that day. And when have you come up against this homiletically and, and what, what choices have you made? You know, I have never preached or I think been part of a congregation that had a homiletical moment on Palm slash Pension Sunday. Um, I think most of that preaching had been reserved for, for other pieces of the Holy Week service. So yeah. I, I don't have as much. What I am mindful of right now is we have been talking about this promise us series all throughout the season of Lent. And I'm wondering now where we see those promises take hold uh, in Palm slash Passion Sunday. Oh, such a good question. Let's spend a minute or two there. I feel like this is the Sunday we have been tending toward all season. This is yes. the one we have been arcing toward. This is the big one. This is the promise. Um, I'm referring back to my prayer of the day that I wrote for this day. Um, and it literally starts, oh, God, this is it. The big promise. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'll read the whole thing. It says, oh God, this is it, the big promise, the one where you reveal yourself, God among us, in shouts of Hosanna, in bread and wine, in the cries in the garden, in the silence of the judgment hall, in the death on the cross. Still us. Open our ears to hear again the promise that changes us, that changes everything. Amen. Amen. Yeah. yeah. That's it. This is the big promise. This is the big one we have been building up to all season. We, you know, we talked back on Ash Wednesday, this might sound a little cheeky, but about the promise being you're going to die. Um, <gasps> yes. And I think, <gasps> I, think if the, I think if the promise of Ash Wednesday is you're going to die, the promise of, of pa the passion is Jesus is going to die. Um, I feel yeah. such narrative satisfaction in that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah. And that's not the end of the story. That's the like, yes, and that God <laughs> cheekily slips in there. Like, you're going to die. God's going to die. That's not it. That's not the end. That's not the end. And it's almost like in the story of the passion, we're hearing about why we need this promise before we hear what the promise is, which I think mm. really is comes to fruition and on Easter Sunday and the resurrection, right? Yeah. So on Palm Sunday, we're almost seeing, or on Passion Sunday, we're almost seeing the reasons for this promise all laid out for us in the story of the passion, like sin and death, um, the violence, the greed, the lust for power that are in this story and that are omnipresent in our own lives. Um, a world that crucifies the Prince of Peace. These are all reasons that we need the promise. Um, 
and it's our own brokenness and our own participation in those systems in our world that makes us needy of this promise too I think oh you nailed it I love that that's it that's it right there that is the homiletical direction I too would go with and I it's just mm, it's right there love it oh I do want to tease out one thing I think is distinctive about the gospel of Mark's account oh yeah so as I was reading through chapters 14 and 15, especially, the thing that I was struck by is at least in Mark's telling, no one executes their part in the passion narrative well. Like the sinfulness and, and the judgment and the fickleness of the, like all of that is there in the way that you just described. But what strikes me about the gospel of Mark is that even in being sinful, capricious, fickle people, people are just really screwing up their parts. Like the... I, I'm, I go back to the story of Jesus with his disciples at the table, and I'm going to find this verse. This is in chapter 14. It starts at verse 18. And when they had taken their places and were eating, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him, and one, one after another, surely not I? <laughs> And I think that you could put a different spin on that question, not I, but like, it's, imagine, Em, that you were sitting at that goddamn table, excuse me, God blessed table, and (laughs) it's like, one of you is going to betray me, and you all like, look at one another, and then you look at yourselves, and you're like, is it it me? Like, who asks that question? None of them are confident. Right? None of them are confident that it won't be them. They're exactly. like, oh, could be me. It could, could be, be me. me it could be me. And uh, <laughs> like, also, this is then followed by, I think, one of the strangest moments in the narrative where, aside from the naked guy running through the Garden of Gethsemane, oh, let's just put a moment. pin in that. Oh, my gosh. Where Jesus is like, it's one of, it's one of who is dipping into the bowl with me. Oh, and oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. This is not the gospel. There is a gospel in which Jesus is like, it's the one who puts his bread in the bowl after me. And then Judas does it and no one catches on. And it's like, what? That's not this gospel. I should let it go. But like, there are such strange details in this narrative. There are. Yeah. Yeah. No one is living up to their potential as, as disciples. (laughs) No, no. The other moment I just, I'll raise as like a pre-prime moment where you can observe this at work is the garden of gethsemane where jesus is like one thing i am asking one thing keep awake and pray with me and then they fall asleep not once not twice but three times three times like oh they don't even know what to say to jesus when he wakes them up the third time and is like guys what so it's just, it's it's not even that the disciples are falling short; it's that they're falling short to such ridiculously comic standards that you're like, "Why is God going through with this plan in the first place?" Yes, what is happening? Yes, yes. yes. Uh, are these people really worth what you're about to go through, Jesus? Yeah. Like these folks that can't even. Yeah, there's right? that, a tinge of that to this story. I um to think of it in a, in a slightly different direction. Just yesterday, I had the privilege of leading a small group Bible study with the young adults at my church. And, you mentioned this uh, and I'm we, so excited. Oh my gosh. Tell yeah. Me we, we riffed on an idea that came from buildfaith.org of binge reading the entire gospel of Mark in one sitting. Um, as you know, I should have known with, you know, technical difficulties and everything aside, it, t- it took, um, a little longer than planned. So if anyone's interested, it, in doing it took us, I think the actual reading was yeah. close to an hour and a half. 
and we had uh, about half an hour set up up front for kind of giving some context and just like a few clues about what to look for as we were reading through the gospel. I think if I did it again, I would maybe incorporate more time for discussion throughout um, and at the end okay. rather than doing all of it up front. That would be my takeaway from this. Um, it was very interesting to hear the whole gospel and to, to hear it audibly, not just read it on your own mm -hmm. in one sitting. But one of the things um, that emerged for one of our folks, they mentioned how in the tradition they grew up in, there had always been this kind of emphasis on the disciples as screw ups. Mm. And for her, as she read through this telling, um, she was noticing how relatable so many oh. of the disciples screw ups were like, <laughs> of course, they thought it was crazy that he told them to go feed 5000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. <laughs> um, and maybe some parts of this passion story will also feel like that to people who hear it, maybe instead of, of, um, hearing about the disciples falling asleep in the garden and saying like, come on guys, it was just one thing. Some people might hear that and say, yeah, it was late. They've had a long day. They're sitting alone in a quiet, beautiful garden. Of course they're drifting off. Um, so there are ways in which I think we can put ourselves in the shoes of these screw up disciples in the passion story and say, oh yeah, even, even for them, even for me, God says it's worth it. Mm. It's totally worth it. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I agree with you about the relatability. I, I absolutely do. I, and I, I don't know if this was intentional on Mark's part, but it's certainly something I see in his gospel. Uh, there mm -hmm. is this balance between a noticing of the ridiculousness of discipleship and the calls of discipleship and also like a, a refreshing sort of reality, a realistic approach to the grittiness. Yeah. There's and humanity. The, huma the humanity. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mark always is striking me as the most human of the gospels. And I love that about it. Mm. I'm so excited about this idea that you have raised that now I want to try in our own context in Holy Week sometime of just binge reading the gospel of Mark. Yeah, go for it. Um, it's, it was a good exercise. It was mm. good. All right. So from here, I want to jump to possibilities for how do we involve children on this day, especially if we're going to pair back homiletically. Um, right. Perhaps you totally excise the children's sermon and find other ways for children to be involved, question mark shrugging shoulders looking at Emily yeah, yeah yeah I think I think there are a lot of ways to involve children in the telling of this story um and I think that many of you know for folks who might still be worshiping virtually come holy week uh which my own congregation will be it might look different than past years or future years, right? So some of these ideas may work in your context. They may not uh, take what is helpful, but I think there are just a myriad of ways to involve children in this service, especially if you're following the story in a way where you're, um, you're really living into the telling of the story through the, the liturgy. Um, so of course, you know, if you've ever done Palm Sunday in your congregation with the wavy palm branches, you know, kids love that stuff. So mm -hmm. um, obviously incorporate them into that. Um, if you're doing a, a real life, you know, in, in-person procession, maybe outdoors, if that's possible in your context, um, have kids lead it, definitely have them participate in it. If it's happening at home, 
is there a way for you to distribute palm branches or provide a simple way of making a palm branch craft? You know, I think with some green construction paper and a pair of scissors, mm -hmm. uh, even the least crafty among us, such as myself, can fashion a palm branch. And you can invite folks to participate in a uh, procession around their living room uh, oh. with their little homemade palms. And you could you know, if you're doing a Zoom sort of worship, you could even invite folks to turn on their cameras at that point. So, so they can kind of feel as if they're together, even while they're apart participating in this procession together. So for the poem part, I think there's some uh, real possibilities. And, you know, what we just described essentially with the pattern of worship kind of being altered to follow the passion narrative. That was something I actually adapted and started doing with kids before I ever did it with adults. Um, yeah, so we would kind of follow that exact same pattern, doing the readings from uh, children's Bible. Um, for a long time, I used the telling in the Spark Story Bible for this. And you just kind of separate that passion story out into smaller chunks. And then each chunk is kind of paired with an activity or, or a different act of worship for kids. So you might read the part about Palm Sunday, and then you invite the kids to participate in a parade for Jesus, right? Uh, and then they can process with their little palms. Um, and you can do that for different parts of the story. We would have, um, we would read the story about foot washing and then have the kids wash each other's hands or feet. We would read the story about the last supper and then they would sit down and have like a little snack together right in the middle of the service. So um, that was a service that became near and dear to my heart and meaningful, I think, to a lot of families who couldn't, who, who for whom it was especially difficult to get little ones out for four nights of worship in a row. Yes. Um, they still got to do the whole Holy Week journey with their kids. And I think a lot of this could be adapted for home worship. So what if you sent your families a little pattern of reading, sent them a dropped off or had them pick up, you know, like a, a children's Bible and assign them for each day of Holy Week to read one of the stories at home. And then each of the stories could have like one of these little activities, like something as simple as like, oh, on Holy Thursday, on Monday, Thursday, read the story at dinner time when you're, when you're sitting down to eat together as a family, make that intention to sit down together and read the story at that time. Since Jesus, you know, that story happens in the context of a meal. Um, so I think you could provide a variety of ways for folks to do this at home uh, if you are not meeting in person together. But how, however you do it, I would strongly encourage you to encourage kids every year, not just this year, to be present in your Holy Week worship. It's mm -hmm. something, these services have like a different feel to them. Um, they, yes. There's a sacredness to them that kids really pick up on. They get that they're part of the most important story of our faith during this week. Mm -hmm. um, so I would encourage you, whether you're worshiping in person or virtually, encourage kids to be present and plan your services um, with them in mind. Maybe that does mean doing something specific for them, like offering a children's message, uh, but maybe it just means planning your worship in a way that's intentionally interactive because that's always going to click with them and, and in a way that's intentionally intergenerational. Um, so that's my, that's my spiel for Holy Week and for the passion and kids. 
I just love that. For me, you're stirring up a whole bunch of ideas about like, how can we do like a nature walk and incorporate some of these things or totally. just, yeah, how do we, oh, so yes, there's something yeah. both immensely frustrating and deeply liberating about being like, I have to do, I have to plan for this, assuming we're not going to be in the building. Uh-huh. <laughs> how shall yes. we do that? Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. oh, oh, I just, oh, you're raising up some really rich possibilities and I love it. Thank you. Yeah. I, in my own home last year, gosh, my son was maybe about 18 months old at the time of Easter. And we, there was no vigil service that we were participating in that year. So just all throughout Holy Saturday, every once in a while, we just grab a children's Bible off the shelf and read one of the vigil stories with him. So it was just, it was, it can be as simple as that. You know, there are all sorts of ways that your, your families might be able to engage the stories at home. Just give them, give them the resources and a couple of ideas. Yes. I will also second your plug for participating in Holy Week services, however people are able to do that. Uh, for me, the the three days, the triduum, is like central to my call to service to the church and my pastoral identity. Just the, the drama of those stories attracted me from a very young age. And in those three, four days, you get the entire story of our faith. Like mm-hmm. that's it. That is right in there. <laughs> And especially on the Easter vigil, it's literally beginning to the end. Here's our faith. That's it. And I just, it's so powerful and so moving and so deeply formative to us as people of faith. Do it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I feel like that's, that's it. That's our Palm slash Passion Sunday thoughts right there. That's it for Lent B 2021 then we're wrapping it up wow (laughs) (laughs) that feels kind of (laughs) heavy it does this has been a really fun journey to walk through with you em and um, it has it's our it's our initial like foray into the world of podcasting so I, I hope that we've got some people who have taken the journey with us and I would just love to hear from them about from you guys I'm talking to you (laughs) I would love to hear from you about how this was helpful and what we might offer in the future that could um, inform or support encourage you in your ministry and in your preaching absolutely yeah and thanks to you Victoria it's just been so much fun and thank you for your editing work and your you know guiding of our (laughs) conversations your curating work it's been really it's been spectacular oh it's been so life-giving I just love this Well, with that, thanks, folks, for joining us for Barn Geese Preachers Podcast. It's been a delight to be with you, and we will be praying for you throughout this Holy Week and blessings on your Easter season. Bye-bye. I want to go to heaven, I do. Hallelujah, Lord. I'll praise the Lord.